We have come to the penultimate episode of Chris Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker's era of Doctor Who, with 2022 April's Legend of the Sea Devils. In Chris Chibnall's own words, this special is a bank holiday action-adventure romp, sea devils on a pirate ship, sword-fighting the Doctor. What more do you want? So, discussing that romp tonight will be myself, Neo from Australia, along with Ingiga from England and Missy from New Zealand. Guys, this is the second last time we'll ever get to do a contemporary discussion on a Chibnall episode. How does that make you feel? A little bit sad. No, it makes me sad too. I, I, I kind of miss being able to just sort of, um, you know, <laughs> have an episode that's just complete. You know what I mean. I think there's, there's been, it's been fun. I think it's been, it's always been interesting to discuss at the very least. Yeah. We've been doing this since like two days after Woman Who Fell to Earth came out. So I'm really feeling the finality in this year now. It's, it's, it's quite emotional. Well, instead of asking what we liked about the episode, like I often do at the start of these, this time I want to shake it up and ask, what was your favourite line of dialogue in the episode? I'll go first because I actually do have an answer for this. Um, it's when Yaz kind of immediately went, um, oh, uh, I, we know you did this and you did this and blah, blah, blah. I don't remember what the exact line was, which I realise is kind of a cheat answer to the question. But when Yaz basically started blabbing to the sea devil and then the doctor was like, actually, I was keeping that in reserve. And Yaz was like, sorry. And the doctor's like, I forgive you. Because that, that moment, it was actually kind of funny. And it reminded me how often they have lacked an actual dynamic like that. It's the kind of moment you would get between a more well-realised doctor and companion where one of them actually makes a mistake because they're getting too into it and the other one has to kind of like <laughs> get them to Settle down a little bit, settle down. Yeah, so that, that was funny, I like that. Yeah. Missy, what was your favourite line? Well, I've got I got two. I got a more funny one. I liked well, I liked it in general, the uh the the, 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 the little bit of banter between whatever that young um guy's name was and Dan. But um I thought it was funny when they were first on the ship and um the guy was like, Oh, you've done pretty well for yourself for being seventy. And then Dan was like, mm. uh, I'm 40 through, through two. So I thought that, that, that was a good line. But, and I also liked on a more serious note, um, and I do believe this is something we'll get into a lot later on, I expect foreshadowing. But um, when 13 said, it'd be with you to Yaz, I thought that was very like a doctory way of revealing that. Devoid of any other context, we can, you know, blah, 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 that's been, but like actually just like revealing that bit of emotionality to do it in such a like techno babbly heavy scene to just drop in. Yeah, that will unpack that scene heaps, I'm sure. But yeah, I like that line. My favorite dialogue in the episode. So, um, when the father of the young guy, whose whose name cannot be remembered by Missy right now, when the father of that guy confronts our pirate historical figure, he says, you have no idea what you're doing. Um, that's what he says. You have no idea what you're doing. And her response is, I was about to say the same to you. Beat, beat, beat. Before I kill you. <laughs> <laughs> It's very, um, you're a big guy for you. Yeah. It's very, very that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 
If I can cheat and have a second one, since Missy did, it would be... Since when do sea devils have a ship? Oh, I get like... Since me. So infuriated whenever I hear that line. Total, um, (laughs) there's no planet called time energy. (laughs) Oh, this doctor is a strange set of concerns for the world, doesn't she? Oh, oh man. Okay, so stuff to discuss in this special, this episode. This, well, I guess that's the first thing. It's 47 minutes long, which is, this. there are shorter episodes than that. Um, and this was never advertised as feature length, like I believe the centenary special has been. So, like, we're not entitled to a long episode, whether that's 60 minutes or 55 or whatever. We're not entitled to that. Uh, but still... Usually these out-of-season specials tend to be longer than usual episodes, like uh, Planet of the Dead was an Easter special and it was longer than usual. Normally specials are longer than usual. Uh, So this one being 47 minutes, I know raised a few eyebrows. For me, it was a double whammy because this week we got that first spin-off Doctor Who Redacted episode, which was 19 minutes, uh, not 30 minutes, like the BBC website said it would be. And then this special was 47 minutes and I'm... I'm feeling, um, may I be disappointed by these run times or should I just suck it up? I mean, COVID and all production's difficult. Maybe it was always scripted to just be around 45 minutes. Am, am, I, am I being a, um, a sore viewer here? Am I complaining too much? It would have been nice if those extra 10 minutes that they uh, shaved off of Sea Devils had been given to Redacted instead by some sort of karmic transfer, but mm. it, it was not to be, sadly. I, I think with the length of this episode, it's like... In some senses, uh, like the editing of it overall was so like slapdash. It's like you could easily suggest like, oh, maybe they cut it out on the editing floor or whatever. But also, the script itself feels so like last minute that maybe it was just honestly just really short. Like, it's not like it's very deep, <laughs> particularly. It's not like I can't envision very much that would have um, extended the runtime a huge amount. And partially, I'm just kind of relieved that it was that short because <laughs> I'm not sure how much more I could have taken. Yeah, I I mean it's still it's it's not a sh- it's not a short piece of television. Forty seven minutes is still meaty enough. Um, I can tell you, it doesn't feel like a short episode of television. Well, that's the most minute uh, topic about the episode that we've covered: the length, the runtime. Uh, other stuff I want to get into is repetition. I think is a interesting topic here. Like we said at the top of this. We're in the final year. We're in the final stretch of the era. So there's a bit of a retrospective vibe to everything now. So I want to get into that a bit. And the structure. Uh, some of the structure stuff here is interesting. Obviously, we're going to talk Thasmin. <laughs> the three of us always have lots to say about that. We'll have plenty of thoughts on Yaz and the Doctor and the relationship stuff. Uh, I want to talk about violence a little bit as well. Uh, and moral standards regarding that. I want to talk a bit about River, because the episode brings her up. I want to talk a bit about some of the cultural stuff, historical stuff, uh, fandom relationship to Chinese elements of the episode stuff. Uh, It might surprise you guys that I'd like to get into that a bit. Uh, Just some interesting Chibnall (laughs) stuff I want to get into as well. He's had some cool interviews lately. Uh, we'll talk about the editing of the episode, I'm sure, and the genesis of this episode, I think we all know a little bit about, and that's 
pretty interesting because this one didn't ferment up like a regular episode. Um, yeah. Where do we want to start? Well, you mentioned it first, so let's just go with repetition, shall we? Since <laughs> you brought it up first. Sure. Why not? Uh, you guys remember um, TTC, the second, uh, the Timeless Children. Uh, you remember how that finale ended, which is that the... Well, one of you guys described this. My voice is <laughs> killing me today. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it, you sound like you've come down with some sort of chib. I'm <laughs> ill. I am ill. It's not COVID. I've been tested, but I am ill. Um, it's It, it preceded the episode. It's not related. But, we'll try and sa- save you some talking this week, maybe. Yeah, try sure. and do some of the talking for you. you. You know what I'm trying to draw here. So, end of Timeless Children? Episode. Yeah. The Koshamas so, connection. Oh, yes, of course, right, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So at the climax of Timeless Children, the Master is uh, goading the Doctor to do some terrible deed and sacrifice herself and blow everyone up, and then just when she uh, decides she can't do it, you know, she's a coward any day, um, Koshamus runs in and he starts babbling about how, oh, I'm it's, it's my uh, sacrifice to make because I was involved in the Siberian thing, and he uh, nicks the button of death off of her, and, and she's like, oh no, but, but but then she's like, okay, fuck it, and runs away. And Koshama presses the button, he's the old guy, and the Cybermen will shoot him, he dies, and then, big bang, uh, death particle goes off, and blah, resolution, episode resolved. And you can see uh, a bit of a mild connection between that and this episode, where you have a character who feels designated to sacrifice himself by dint of being, you know, several centuries out of his uh, own time zone, and he's already been, like, stuck in the living death for this whole time and he's just like okay i'll i'll sacrifice myself instead of you doctor oh god i'm sorry i must sound the most boring narrator in history but yeah yeah you can see how there's a bit of a parallel with other characters just um uh, volunteering themselves so the doctor doesn't have to it's so weird because like it's it's these scripts are being decided to be written this way why are you making your hero be like absolved by like a side character going hey don't worry i'll take it i'll take care of it it's just such a weird writing decision to me because uh, it makes her look cowardly um certainly in the timeless children uh and avoidant and it's just fundamentally passive and like react it's like you're putting your hero protagonist like out of the picture and you're having someone else do the sacrifice it just doesn't feel very story-ish to me it's it's like such a cop-out yeah, it's like such a cheap way to 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 sort of have this drama at first, but then not actually do anything with it. It's like, oh my god, what's going to happen? And it's like, oh, n- nothing really, because we've got a random person here to, to bear the brunt of it while we just leave. It's very awkward. I think I can sort of see where it comes from, because the idea of one of the side characters sacrifices himself to save the day, I mean, that's been a thing since Classic Who, right? So it's like, it's one of those Mm. cliches that's like locked in, it's like on the list of things that can be put in a generic episode. But then when you combine it with, oh, the Doctor's going to be the one to sacrifice herself first because she's the immortal Time Lord or whatever, you end up with this conflict where the side character sacrifices himself to save the Doctor. And it's like, it's just, it does feel like a very odd, like, alignment of priorities in some ways. Like, like the the sort of the things aren't matched together very well so side character sacrifice himself to save the world that's one kind of story doctor sacrifices themselves to do something or other that's one story but then when you, yeah the, the 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 fusion doesn't quite play so well when it would happen with i know we do this every time and everyone does this every time but past incarnations of the doctor would, would fight against 
someone else standing in for them, sacrificing themselves in their name. But but thirteen is very much like, oh, okay, I'll go then, and you can die. It's quite fun to imagine her at the end of um, Forest of the Dead with Raymond Rivers <laughs> plugging herself into the library. <laughs> it's like, yeah, River wouldn't need to handcuff thirteen to the to the no. to the radiator or whatever. And then it would, just, it would, just, it would just end. And then it yeah. wouldn't be the bit of thirteen running down with the sun. Mm. The it's what gets me about it is no one is forcing Chibnall or Ellerode or any writer here to structure episodes to have a climax like that. Like it, it's like stories don't need to <laughs> climax like that. The scripts don't have to come to a point where oh the world is going to end unless someone sacrifices themselves um, in this situation with this mecha- like there's no that doesn't have to happen. You could write it differently. You could have the stakes differently. You could have the plot different. It's just weird to me that uh, this well keeps being returned to uh, in this era. And it just feeds into so much weird characterization stuff with this doctor and her passivity. I just don't get why we keep doing it this way. I think there's a set of assumptions about adventure stories, maybe, how Doctor Who stories are, should, are ought to work or are supposed to work or whatever. Where, like, you know, someone has to die or whatever and has to be a bit of pathos like that to kind of make it feel i don't know like you've been on more of a journey or something like that Mm. so you know you have some good guys who live and the good guy who sadly dies but at least it was for a good cause and yeah everyone it was a romp everyone's happy and yeah it is a there's there's a weird ideology of assumptions to it and it's it's maybe not so great i think when you're doing stuff just for the sake of doing it rather than because it's really um Rather than because there's really any uh, interesting ideas or thoughts or passion, but anyway, it's just it's just going to play really hollowly. Uh, I think a related thing with this episode, because um, we're talking about the show, the, this era's weird approach to <laughs> sacrifice, the Doctor's weird approach to passivity. I think a connected thing is the approach to violence and pacifism in this era. So we get a classic, um, Carl, you had no right to kick uh, the Stenzer off the thing. We get a classic moment like that. Um, you had no right to kill the sea devil uh, guy who will sacrifice yourself for me in a few minutes. You had no right to stab the nasty sea devil. And then we have a big fun scene of Dan <laughs> just wiping the floor <laughs> with a bunch of sea devils. Um is it literally the next scene? It's like within the same it's, sequence. It's pretty much the next scene. It's like <laughs> it's like two minutes apart. <laughs> Just what was going on in this era, in this episode? Like, I I refuse to believe the editor could not see. This is a bit weird to, to square up these two ideas like right next to each other. Uh, what's the thinking here? Can either of you t- walk me through that? I mean, I wonder if to some extent stuff like the Doctor suddenly like taking issue, like, oh my God, because she, she's about to leave and she turns around like, oh my God, you killed him, we didn't have to do that. And then the, and then it's just, you know, tidied away. I wonder if that was inserted on one of the redrafts, because mm. I think just the general sense of incoherence is like, it just comes from things not being thought of holistically, like, yeah. at all. The whole, and as for the whole sword fight bit, I mean, I wonder, like, to what extent any of the action, any of these scenes is like, even scripted or if they just made it up on the fly or just yeah. and god knows <laughs> yeah also I sh- mm. just before we move on that bit um the bit where uh 
Dan is with Ji-hun and then he kind of swings around his sword and wipes out like a whole ring of sea devils and yeah. and Ji-hun is like where did you learn to deal with your enemies like that <laughs> and Dan is like oh you, you should meet my mum like <laughs> on like on my attempted rewatch that was where I just gave up because the thing is when they did the similar kind of thing with um the walk in flux right and the whole idea of like oh Dan's from Dan's family are like Dan's from a family where uh, comedic antics happen and people get bashed over the head or whatever. Like that joke worked then, but in this case, it's just like a non-joke. Like Dan, like Dan, just sort of swings a sword around. Like, what does that have to do with his mum? Honestly, like fucking nothing. But just because we're meant to vaguely think, oh, I guess his mum is is really uh, get is quick to anger. I guess like it's just so lazy. Like it's just it's just yeah. asking us to make all the. Uh, connections and assumptions here and just like play on these really crap broad cliches about about mums of course and about I guess working class families as well and it's just it's just so rubbish it's just soul crushing I know uh, we have a friend uh, the three of us Dilb who's sometimes on these um, discussions <laughs> who really really hates that type of humour it really incenses him the humour that's just like oh um, my f- it's like a folksy little reference. My family member or the place I come from. Oh, you, you know, you do that there. Oh, um, mate, uh, that's a Yorkshire love letter. You know, oh, oh better name than Stebble, mate. This, this, just this kind of folksiness. Uh, where I come from, swing, 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 swinging my sword. This is a love letter. You know, you know, you should meet my mum. It's just, it's so crap. It's like AI generated humor. It's like. You know the exact rhythm of the punchline before it's even said. You like it. You you can swap out the place names or the family member names. You know exactly what it is <laughs> before it's even said. It's just so crap. You should meet my mum. It's uh, it's just the bare minimum of a joke. How many how many episodes of Graham saying shit like this did we already get? It's it's just. I, I'm so, I'm so, so, so sick of it. There's just folksy, oh, where I come from, there's a smaller scale domestic thing, which is, you know, equivalent to this high concept thing, but it's like, it's a small town or it's just a family member. Isn't that crazy? It's just uh, enough. Just like my uniform camera. <laughs> yeah, like a posh version of my uniform. God. So I, f- I feel like I'm in the heaven sent loop with, with this era sometimes. It's just like you see the matrix of all these jokes being the exact same joke. It's like the one joke. It's so infuriating. Like, oh, um, the app on my phone because of the stars, because it's like it's a big high concept thing, but now it's a really small, like domestic thing. It's like a phone app. It's just. It's not a joke. It's just a series of word association. I probably sound cra- crazy right now. But it's all—it's the same thing. It's the same thing every time. It's like you can mad libs it so easily. And I'm not saying that other writers don't have repetitive jokes, but at least it's a bit more flair with you know Moffat's type of wit. I think this episode really, um, this was not Dan's finest showing in general. I think the handling of Dan in this episode was like, I mean, it's got to be worse than it's ever been. <laughs> like, I, I love, I love when <laughs> the fact that like 50 minutes and he, he just, he just makes a decision to wander off. And then we cut back to the TARDIS, <laughs> the doctor's like, Dr. Naz, like, he wandered off. Oh, well, best fucking then, let's go fly off. And then they, just they, just, they just ditch him. It's just, oh, God. Yeah, Dan is like, 
and all of Dan's lines, like that when he starts gibbering about his phone and like just so, just so the historical character tell him what the fuck are you talking about? And he's like, Haha, lots of people say that to me because of my accent. <laughs> I get it. It's just like fucking hell. Like this. Is, it's, oh it's my just god. How how do like I'm sure other people, <laughs> even people who like this here, must see. Do you not see that we've just gone into Rosa and we're seeing Graham talk about the iPhone to the cop? It's the same joke. It's the same scene. It's the exact same thing. It's just like we're b- barreling through this like matrix of all the era joined up together. That's what this episode felt like to me. That's a, that's the whole repetition thing I was trying to lead with here. It's just there's so many moments in this where I just felt like I was watching another episode or another scene or another parentheses beat. It's just like so much here is just we're going through the motions of what we've we've already done. Or, or it's happened so many times by now that I just feel like I can see the matrix of, <laughs> of how this era all works. Also on the topic of bad jokes related to Dan, um, I thought the bit where when um, Dan was like, oh, let, let me talk to our hand, our hand of the talking, and then they jump cut to them both being um, swung from their legs. See, that kind of joke, like, you can see what it's supposed to be. You can see, like, it's a very like common kind of joke. Character says they'll do something, jump cut to them having failed horrifically because they're, they're, haha, they're incompetent. Like, but the thing is, even though that joke is incredibly easy to write into a script because you don't have to actually write the bit where the thing happens, you can just skip to it. I think which makes it very appealing to kind of lazy writers. It's actually quite hard to make work. Like, there's an episode I love, The Girl Who Died, which tries a similar joke like this. The doctor's like, okay, I'm going to have you, I'm going to give you the swords, guys, you incompetent Viking dudes. Here's some swords. Jump cut to the village on fire. Like, that episode's great, but that joke doesn't quite work. I think you have to really get the timing right for that kind of humour. And all over this episode, there's just, like, really awkwardly, like, like uh, paced, uh, edited attempts at humour. And it's just, on the whole, it's just really... It's exhausting. It's exhausting to witness. I think the thing with jokes... <laughs> the thing with jokes, not just, like, in dialogue, but, like, visual jokes, like, jokes from, like, a smash cut to something, is, like, there aren't that many jokes like there are no infinite jokes you know especially not in like an adventure story there's only so many things you can do but i think part of the fun is like you do you do them in a surprising way or a new way or like like the the joke about oh um i have a phone with an app so i didn't do the i didn't actually learn the stars like uh, there's a way that maybe could have worked if it was written really funnily like by someone good at that like there are some doctor who writers who are really witty uh and so they can like Moffat repeats some of the same jokes so many times and sometimes it doesn't work for me at all but often it will just because he's good with wordplay so he like finds a new funny way to phrase what is absolutely the same joke but it's like new um in how it's phrased here it's like is like the visual jokes and the dialogue jokes it's just they feel so ai generated to me it's like there's no there's no polish to it it's just like it's the bare it's like the bare bones draft of the joke realized yeah i think i think it's i think it's quite similar to what we were just saying about um the sacrifice scene where it it's the kind of thing that happens in other stories or in other things it's just a thing that happens and so that's just being employed here because it's a thing that usually tends to happen with no thought given to how to make it work or how to do it well it's just like oh we'll we'll, we'll just do a bit of banter we'll we'll we'll, we'll make it an iphone joke because of differing time periods oh, i've i've a thought has struck me um 
don't laugh. Well, it's a joke. So I guess do laugh. Uh, you remember in Resolution <laughs> when the main events of the episode cut out and we got to a completely random family doing a bunch of like boomer humor <laughs> jokes about um, Netflix. That's exactly like, it. Yes. Well, but the jokes there are lazy. Like it's um, uh, kids don't understand talk and they just understand Netflix and TikTok. Like the jokes are completely lazy. <laughs> but the, the realization of the joke there, uh, maybe it's lazy, maybe, but it's not normal. That's not how jokes usually work in this show is to cut to a random cast that isn't related to anything in the episode doing the joke. Uh, and so part of the reason I find that scene funny is because like it's just so bizarre and surprising. It's, it's so much of the heart of a joke is the surprise factor. It's so surprising to cut to a random family squawking about Netflix. Like it's really clumsily done in the episode, but it's not done like in the normal way you see a joke done here, which is like Graham says some boomery thing about phones or Dan says some boomery thing about phones. And that's just the characters in a, are in a scene with everyone and they say their stupid line. Um, and that's why I'm just so sick of that by now. Like, at least with resolution, that joke was deployed so bizarrely in terms of how it was visually realised. And so there was some novelty there. Another one I liked, um, when 13 brings up Pimp My Ride. <laughs> oh, that's... I was debating how much I wanted to go into that. Um, am I going to sound crazy if I get on this... No, you have you brought it up now. You have to say it. Yeah, okay. it's too late. <laughs> I know. I've no. I've complained about. I've talked to Gig about this before. Um, I might sound crazy here because I've talked to some other people about it, and they had no idea what I was talking about. And I think they thought I was being in bad faith or being like extremely oversensitive about this. But um, and I I so rarely see this brought up by anyone, and so maybe I am being really oversensitive and weird about this, but. The way, like, the whole fam thing, the way the Jodie Whittaker's doctor says fam all the time, and it's like, oh, it's so kooky that she's saying fam. And, like, in this episode, to say pimp my ride, like, this isn't just, like, slang out of nowhere. Like, those are specific terms from, like, a sp specific kind of, you know, subculture. Like, it's, it's not just... I think the generous way to think about it is maybe that Chibnall just sees this as generic youth culture stuff um and so it's just like what the youth say but i don't know it's always given me a weird vibe when she takes terms like that um and just deploys them and like oh it's a dorky old white person you know saying something um black teens might be saying like i don't know it just it doesn't make me feel whenever i see like an old dorky guy say and we'll say pimp in any context, really. Um, certainly pimp my ride. Like, I get my hackles raise a little bit. And I think this is, mm, like, what what kind of dude is this? If I hear someone in real life start using slang like that, who's like a white old boomer. And so when Jody does it, you know, and by proxy when Shibnal does it, I don't know. No one else seems to really care about it. So maybe I'm completely off base. But it's always made me feel a bit weird how much she uses these terms fam. And there's Pimp My Ride. To, like, to be these... fair about Pimp My Ride, like that was also the name of a television show, which I know a lot of British people, like white or otherwise, will have seen. Which yeah. so that maybe he's like harking all the way back to that. But I I totally see where you're coming from with like the the fam stuff and like the way in which uh, the the way in which Jodie comes off as <laughs> yeah, just kind of like again like donkey white woman like hello fellow yeah. kids yeah. It's like Pimp My Ride. I remember when that was really um really popular. Uh, 
with exhibit um and you, you know yeah. there were so many memes about it back in the day but so many of those memes are like it's like we've got a funny picture of exhibit up and we're like doing like some dorky oh um i put my x in your y inception exhibit um you know it's like i don't know maybe i'm totally crazy here but i've always just gotten a weird vibe with like the gleeful way some people deploy these terms and like it's like are they making fun of themselves or are they making who are they making i don't know some weird vibes no i get you i didn't feel it with fan but 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 the pimp my ride i was like oh interesting choice like, thir- make 13 just has weird. powerful cringe like yeah. all the time <laughs> yeah <laughs> See, I, another thing I liked when um when Yaz was to thirteen, like you're like a kid sometimes, and thirteen was like thanks. What only sometimes? Let's take a look at the the shipwreck. It's like it's like oh. the perfect marriage of like awful dialogue and like a performance. It's just like not trying that to make it feel absolutely natural. Absolutely atrocious. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> I remember thinking that that was like the first time Chibnall had written like banter with Thasman in mind, and seeing it come to life on screen i was like oh my gosh 13 does not know how to interact with a human being i should this is kind of uh, things we're not going to talk about but i should bring it up um before the episode aired uh well i went and i listened to some podcasts and i read some articles on the um historical figure in the episode because i was anticipating more (laughs) stuff (laughs) stuff from that but I also, I didn't get around to it, but I wanted to rewatch the old 1970s The Sea Devils um, serial with John Pertwee's Doctor, because, um, man, there's a lot to talk about <laughs> in that one. Um, I even thought of watching The, Salur- the Salurians, because that connects, of course. Um, I So I, I thought stuff from The Sea Devils, which is kind of like a narrative about God. Uh, there's a lot of complicated stuff of, like, colonization and violence and pacifism and like genocidal approaches to indigenous populations there's a lot of heavy stuff and it's there's a lot you can talk about how it was handled um if you're talking about it now uh and also the historical stuff i was interested because there's a lot i thought would be used um here especially in a story with the sea devils um but it wasn't uh so where i'm coming from with that is uh, we should talk about the sea devils as they are in this episode, which isn't as like a big political thing like I was expecting. Like I read the old sea devils story as they would kind of hear it just as um, uh, like I don't think they needed to be the sea devils. They could have been any just kind of random. The brief bit where they actually allude to who the sea devils are when thirteen Yaz are in the TARDIS and thirteen's like oh, they, they regard them they regard this planet as their own. Yaz is like, well, that's not good, and, like, and that's <laughs> it. It's like it really is like it's like the 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 worst possible kind of approach you could take. Really, I mean, obviously the episode doesn't care like about that element at all. Yeah, which again, it's like you say, it doesn't need to be there. <laughs> like it's really like why why is it the sea devils? It's just very it's very strange. I mean, at the end of the day, they all just get slammed into that black hole thing and it's like whatever sure fine <laughs> the, the the only like little political sea devil thing we can read into is uh the doctor phrasing this uh what like they believe that it's theirs or like they see it as their like that's a like i mean what are you saying they weren't here first like <laughs> what 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 is how it's a weird way to frame it they were like they, they yeah. are indigenous to earth it's not it's not a point of view it read to me as such a like 
childish black and white simplification of it. It's like, oh, they're the, they're the bad guys of the episode. So we're just going to like skim over this entire history and just be like, oh, yeah, they, 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 they think they used to be here. That's not good. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah, and Yaz is, that's not good. Um, like, the, the line the Doctor gives is so vague. Like, is it not good that other, they... Other races exist? That they were there first? Is it not good that they think they were... Th- like, <laughs> what exactly is not good here? And of course, their plan is to make the Earth aqua once more. Yeah. <laughs> the I kind of I like the um, pole switching idea. That's kind of fun. Uh, I wish there was a bit more done with that. Like, the wacky star visuals... It's a kind of cool, I can see like a um, Kill the Moon-esque kind of very fantastical take on this idea of switching the poles where we might like completely disregard the science of it and just do like a fun kind of, ooh, what would it mean to switch up the, the you know, the, 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 the poles or to reverse the Earth's polarity? What could that do? Like, I think it's a f- fun idea. Um, but besides the star visuals, not much was really done with it, I don't think. Maybe maybe if McTie had written this, it could be about climate change. <laughs> yeah, them flooding, flooding the country. We need to we need to open the new sea routes. <laughs> yeah, I I have surprisingly little to say about the sea devils because they're not they're like oh there is that bit where the doctor is like these ones are zealots. I used I knew you guys in the future and you were pretty cool. You guys are just oh, God, those, wackos. those lines like that 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 felt like something felt very chibi about the way she was always like you're much more of a zealot than the ones I've met before in the future. I've met these guys before in the future. Like holy shit, you need to keep saying you've met them before in the future. The dialogue is so awkward when she keeps like, like blathering this out. Like the fact that you met them once before in the future. Like not every detail of that needs to be said every single time. It just it just feels like a weird chibi impulse to put in the the factual technically she's met them before and it was in the future like fuck no one cares it's it's Jesus. always interesting to see like what what is included and what isn't because we were just talking about how like like skipped over like the fact that the sea devils were here first and oh that's not good but we we need to have like attention paid to the the, the doctors met them before in the future we need to know that warriors of the deep happened and so did the sea devils but we don't need to know like the specifics. We just need to know that there are other episodes of Doctor Who that also exist. One sort of small strange thing with the Sea Devils in this episode is that um, when the Doctor first says Sea Devil and the Sea Devil rejoins like, oh, land parasite. And she's like, oh, let's not get to name calling or whatever. It feels like the episode has a very faint kind of awareness that the name Sea Devil is kind of weird. <laughs> like in terms of like, in terms of it being a name for them that is nonetheless the official name, even though it's like an insulting name that they would never really, why would they call themselves that? Like the episode seems aware of that, but also to not really engage with that but it gives it has the sea devils repeatedly refer to the humans as you know land crawler land parasite and it's like okay well what's the <laughs> what, what's actually your take here and there's been a quite fun funny discourse with the fans after the episode like you know johnny morris has been being very galaxy brained on twitter talking about how oh well the sea devils is, is their official name and uh oh it's it's it's, it's just um oh oh there's humans have ancient race memory and that's their true name and humans named them that because they remembered from the past that that's what they were it's like what the, what the hell are you guys talking about like it's this weird urge with fans not to just accept that it's weird from be called that they should have an official name like the i mean silurians do but no they're just sea devils because we can't be bothered to think about things anymore i I, well i think it's the sea devils the the creatures themselves and the 70s serial they come from they're a massive tell on fans i think what what they think of the original sea devils story uh, and the sea devils themselves like some of the shit people say about the silurians is like and the Sea Devils, like, it's all make-believe, 
fantasy uh sci-fi nonsense sure but like it's at, at the end of the day it's a story about an indigenous population and you know the the british like the british military unit response to them and like it's you can't depoliticize those old st- you can this one because <laughs> it's so bare bones but the old ones you can't depoliticize those so the way some people are so keen to like justify oh no we got to call them the uh it's kind of like a um it's not a slur but it kind of invokes slur kind of mindset i think sea devils like it's, it's absolutely a, that that kind of linguistic like all these devils like you yeah know, it's, it's very much linked to that whole so thing <laughs> you see people rush to um defend like are you saying he brings up race memory like these um, apparently there's like some bbc books thing that he may have also yeah. written which has an official a canon explanation for it which is like that's their true name and humans just happen to remember that because it's in it's their like, dna you know what i mean like these are very political um, I saw an even more deranged take actually in his reply. Someone was like, "Actually, um, their official name is Z Devils, and that's been corrupted into into English as Sea Devils." It's like, what? What the fuck are you talking about? Just, just truly galaxy yeah, brain it's shit. It's just riffing on on Tim Shaw, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> oh man, it's it's yeah. Just slightly tangentially on the linguistics front, we also see how the sea devils refer to their um, big snake, sea snake thing, as um, they call it the Hua Shen, which is the same name that it has in the human mythologies about the creature. And it's like, it's like, it's odd. It feels like that's that seems to overlap with the whole linguistic confusion regarding the sea devils' names. And they also have like the the human name for their own like for their own monster. Like, what, 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 the sea devils don't seem to have their own anything. I guess their own sort of. Um, any sort of details about any sort of way they have no interiority as a culture i suppose as, as they're depicted did you see what i'm coming from like they don't seem to have yeah. their own versions yeah. of anything and you know what's weird is chibnall's the dude who wrote the series five two-parter with the silurians and then he did dinosaurs on a spaceship which is a an interesting one that's a um that's one of the few times i've seen the silurians written in a way that isn't redoing um, you know, the, the, the original Silurian story. Uh, so he cares about the Silurians more than the Sea Devils, I guess. It's just weird that he doesn't hook into any of the big ideas of them here. I think that it stems from, um, like, the fact that the original Sea Devil serial takes so much from the original Silurian serial. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that Silurians were well, more well-developed. And then yeah. when you have someone like chris chimnall bringing these um monsters back into the into the revived series um because it's like so steeped in nostalgia there's this tendency to just treat them the same way so where the silurians were the more developed ones in the original series they continue that and because the sea devils had no interiority in the classic series they just continue to not have interiority mm. and continue to be called sea devils like is the tiniest bit of like questioning about the name but not actually changing the name because it's so focused on nostalgia so we need to keep calling them sea devils but we need to have that one line that's like oh sea devils is a bit weird but not weird enough to do anything about it i did like gig brought up their pet um i did like that that they have the big uh sea monster pet um that's endearing it wasn't the murka <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, just you, when you brought up dinosaurs in the spaceship, actually, and how the Silurians are handled in that, I think just something that clicked there is that in dinosaurs in the spaceship, those are like the future Silurians, I guess, who are like much mm. more, um, I guess, some some 
future perfect civilization and there's a planet called Siluria, basically the ideal future Silurian world where everything's been resolved. And I guess that's maybe the ideological element of that is that we never see the bit where the Silurian situation is actually peacefully resolved. We just have either the present where, oh, nothing can be done. Silurians must just go away and stay underground. And then you have the future where everything's fine. Uh, but we don't have yeah. the process mm, of actually mm, getting mm. there. <laughs> so it's you know, like, you, you know, at some point it will be fine. Just just not now. You know Never now. <laughs> you know what I really hate about that? Which is the whole, um, the Silurian sea devil stories will typically bring up the, ooh, because they were here first, should we coexist? That would be crazy. You know, that would, that the world would look so different if they coexisted. How can we avoid doing that? How can we return to the status quo as quick as possible or in a way that doesn't make the doctor look as evil as possible? What I hate about that is so many people, fans of all stripes, fans uh, with very different perspectives on the show will often trot out this shit where they say, Doctor Who is about change. And you know, the beautiful thing about the show is it's about change. Um, and change herein is imagined as, uh, you know, I brought up Mad Libs with like the dialogue earlier. Like what, what, what threat of the week can we swap out? What planet of the week can we swap out? Let's do the same status quo of storytelling basically with the show, but it's about change because it's a different alien each week or something. They're doing the actual meat and bones, the actual, the actual meat of the Silurian or Sea Devil's story that isn't told would be, okay, they- they come in, not just Vastra, not just one or two, but an actual reckoning with what's happened between the humans and these indigenous creatures here, which is how would they be incorporated into society? And maybe it would be written in the way that like series nine did the Zygons, which is, it's a pretty interesting way. Um, Harness and Moffat decided to go with that, but you know, they did actually try to go, well, we'll integrate them into society and we'll see how that's done. It might end up we decide to make them all, you know, basically masquerade as humans. But, you know, at least we've written the story of how the coexisting is going to happen. I hate this avoidance shit where it's like the show will do episodes where, oh, it nearly has to happen that the Silurians or the Sea Devils will come to a reckoning with modern Earth. But no, then they get refrozen or blown up or whatever. And then we can skip them. We can do a story in the future when it's already happened. But there's just like this loathing to actually do the story suggested by all Silurian and Sea Devil stories, which is what if they did have a reckoning in in the present day. And it just annoys me because I hate when this shit about Doctor Who is about change is always trotted out. And yet, you know, the, so many writers avoid doing the stories that would actually change the way the, the show is made or the way the stories are told in it. And I get that, oh, we can't afford to have the budget for, you know, the the creature but that's you know that's your problem <laughs> you're the ones deciding to bring it up in the first place by doing another sea devil story or whatever yeah i think fundamentally like the the level of nostalgia that would cr cause an episode like legend of the sea devil to be made is just so often linked to stuff which doesn't which just just like you shouldn't be doing this why, why are you having this nostalgic impulse to do these stories mm. that are just going to be bad like why it sucks like imagine imagine if we get a nostalgic talons revival at some point and not in big yeah. finish i mean in the tv show at some yeah. point because big finish has been doing more than their fair share of that <sighs> yeah um that some kind of connected to the underuse of sea devil stuff to me was the underuse of our History, our historical figure and the general history around the episode. Uh, when I heard she was going to be in the episode, um, it made sense to me because, like, sea devils, 
like colonization um, stuff. Like that's a very natural thing with them, um, who they are. Uh, and our historical figure, um, like her conflicts with the Portuguese and, you know, 19th century China and Portuguese stuff. Like I assumed that that would be like the linking, like maybe we'd get the battle of the tiger's mouth uh, in the show. Um, but with a twist that uh, sea devils or something were involved or, you know, I just figured that like if we're going to be including this figure, we'd be like using some interesting bit of her life. Uh, and not really. Like it's, it, she, she kind of felt like, um, like, it's like our, our, our man that we went back to that sacrificed. He's not a real figure. Um, I feel like she might've not been a real figure and then just got like in a later draft. Oh, what if we used so-and-so? Um, here because like she doesn't really feel knitted into it like i know radio times tweeted out like their article they did on the actual history um after the episode aired but it's like the it's like something i hate with this era sometimes is this general idea of oh we brought back the educational remit um and then it's like well have you like what about this episode is like connected to history or about history like a person existed and had this name like that, like, I don't understand really what we're meant to see of her beyond the fact that she's, you know, a pirate, um, a very successful pirate, like, but like, there's, there's nothing of her actual history really here, or there's not, nothing of that much interest to me beyond just like her existence. Um, so I hate that about when episodes, not always in this era either, but they get talked up for, oh, look how educational it is, or look at the historical value. And it's like, but what? You're not really doing anything. You're just like having someone's name in it and hoping they'll Google them later. That's not really integrating even, anything about what's interesting about them. Even by the standards of this era's historicals, it was quite like sloppy. I mean, in Flux, we had Mary Seacole, who was not exactly handled with some great degree of care, but there was at least an element like when she was looking after Sontara in her hospital, right? That's a way of weaving in who she was as a person and her historical significance into the story in a way that's kind of funny, kind of cute. And like, you know, there was more effort put into that than there was in anywhere this. It's like, so it really is just like, let's we just have a generic pirate type character. And yeah, and like, and in terms of all of the scenes with her, like her dialogue and with that, with that boy who's like, wants to kill her and then doesn't later. And like, it, it, like the, in terms of the guest ensemble, the relationships are so, um, I guess, flimsily conceived that none of their dialogue or humour or banter or you know, drama really lands at all. Like, um, in particular with um, the, the kid and how he's just like, oh, if you let us three, we're gonna, free, we're going to kill you. And then she's like, okay, you can, you guys can work my ship. Like, you know, it's all good. <laughs> it's just like, it's just, oh, it's just so half-assed. Like, it's just really insufferable. But I did like the shot where the stars are in her eyes. Mm, that was that just was... a random moment of like, oh, let's do a let's do a really nice effect shot here, just kind of trying to offset the sheer crass shitness of the rest of the story. I read in um Doctor Who magazine five hundred seventy six, uh, the actress for our historical figure read um uh, Larry Fane's historical uh, fiction novel on the figure, and sh- she was reading all this stuff about the figure uh, before the episode um came about, um. She was like just interested in her herself, um, like she had her own interest in the figure, and so she knew all this stuff, um, already, and had you know read that uh that that novel about her, and re- you know read stuff about her, 
Um, and so in Doctor Who magazine, she's talking just a little bit about some of the really fascinating stuff in this historical figure's life. <laughs> it's like, and the episode doesn't even really reference it. It doesn't talk about her um, son slash husband. It doesn't talk about like the conflicts with Portugal or anyone really. Like it's like it's just she feels so uh, like generic here or like could have been anything could have been anyone um and it's so frustrating to me because people i I just i just hate the lines where people are like um oh these episodes are great because they're about history or you know they're so inspiring how they educate what like what are people talking about where (laughs) where besides hearing the person's name and so getting the impulse to go google them and then actually learn about them what what is in here that i'm not seeing that's meant to be interesting about I can her. see Madame Ching joining the uh, the girl boss lineup from Spyfall. Just like that general sense of superficiality. She's one of those historical figures where, like, I I wouldn't if I when I hear Doctor Who is doing an episode with her, I have no idea what part of her life they're going to use because there's so many rich periods they could have like plucked her from. Um, but it's it's like it <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's just a generic. Oh, she's a pirate and she's not with her crew and she has sons. Um. Like, this could have been anything or anyone. This didn't have to be historical. And so, like, that's fine. That is what it is. But I just hate it when people vaunt the historical value, you know, the educational remit of the show or whatever. Like, come on. The costumes um, are another thing. What do you guys think of the costumes? Not just the um, Chinese ones either. Uh, The costumes in the episode in general. I liked how right at the start, the moment the Doctor comes out the TARDIS, she was like, oh, we're a few centuries off. Just justify that her and Yaz aren't wearing period-appropriate clothing. Like, like that's, 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 that's uh, amusing. Um, yeah. And of course you have, to, at, least, at least in Dan's case, they made a whole gag about it. Like him wearing wildly, uh, wildly inappropriate clothes. Man, even just talking about the tiniest, minute aspect of this episode, just really like, just, uh, just like... Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> so... The thing with um, the costumes for this episode, more so the Asian costumes, is how to put this. You know, in The Woman Who Fell to Earth, where the Doctor is in an op shop and she's just trying on like a bunch of random clothes because like op shops have a bunch of random clothes. That's what they are. And it's like, uh, it's just a bunch of mix of random things. The thing is, when you're doing a story with English history or English characters or English stuff like that, um, there's an intuitive understanding on the part of like British writers because they've grown up in that culture of like uh, what would work or not work or be weird or not be weird. Like they'll understand that um, uh, there's certain lines or things you could do with uh, where somewhere England's had a conflict with. Uh, there's certain stuff you could do with Irish culture in an episode set in England that would feel wrong to people, um, for example, because, you know, uh, there'll be that intuitive understanding if you're from Ireland or you're from England about, you know, these conflicts exist and it's not the same culture and it's different. Uh, they'll have that because they've grown up in that culture. So when you go to use cultural elements or aesthetic elements from cultures you haven't grown up in or you don't speak any of the languages of or um, have that kind of connection of, it's tricky because, like, if you mash up two random things um, and you might recognize these are both from Asia. Um, but you can see, like I saw the other day, I saw a beautiful um, musical f- performance, which was uh, all traditional Korean. Um, it was extremely Korean. It was using traditional Korean instruments. Um, 
or the singers were dressed up in traditional Korea warrior outfits. Like it just screamed Korea, right? Um, and I saw this comment on it saying, oh, it's so cool that they've used all Japanese <laughs> aesthetics <laughs> for this performance. And it's like, it's two things. It's a couple of things. It's um, one, it's just their own ignorance. Like they don't know enough about Japanese culture or Korean culture to recognize what that instrument is or what that costume is. Um, but the more important thing to me is that they must lack the kind of cultural knowledge to know why that would be so offensive to look at a Korean cultural thing and say, wow, it's all Japan. Like that obviously is incredibly offensive uh, to a Korean person or a Korean performance like that. Um, but not only would this person, wherever they're from, lack the knowledge to tell what is Japanese or what is Korean, they'd lack the know-how to know why it's bad to like say, oh, this Korean thing is Japanese. Um so, with the costumes in this episode, in Doctor Who magazine, there's some talk about, like, they'd go around and they're finding beautiful silks to make period oriental tops for the Doctor. And they go around and find authentic Chinese slippers for Mandip, um, which come from China. I think you can see it, even if you don't have, like, a big knowledge of Chinese, like, um, aesthetics and eras as regarding to costuming. I think these outfits do look a little um, mixed up, uh, wouldn't you say? Um, I noticed before the episode actually aired, some fans, like some Chinese fans as well, were kind of pointing out like Jihun's costume. Like, why is he dressed yeah. like that on the high seas? And I think even if you know absolutely nothing about the actual context of what would be accurate in that situation, even just watching the episode, something doesn't quite seem like right. Like, <laughs> like they're on the high seas. But yeah, it's, it's like the sort of, um, the sort of, play and dress up kind of Doctor Who thing where we're just going to muck around in the, see, see whatever the, the costume shop has. And it's just, yeah, it's, 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 it's cringe. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just the tricky thing. Like, I think everyone likes Doctor Who um, going beyond Britain and, you know, using uh, cultures and, and kind of figures that it doesn't normally use. I think everyone you know on all sides of the phantom generally likes this as far back as the 60s but it's tricky because like you know these mostly british people working on the show are going to lack uh some of the intuitive knowledge to work out where you can just mash things together and it'll be fine or where it might read a bit weirdly uh to people to a big it's not even just the intuitive knowledge or whatever like it just in terms of the resources like if you work in the bbc like mm. yeah there's so much period stuff because period television is so huge in britain because of all the locations we have and just stuff like that and so the costume's going to be there the resources going to be there all of that is going to be the architecture the infrastructure to make you to help you get period british stuff right or period even just period european yeah. stuff is going to be so like bedded in it's all there so like you can't if you're going to like go beyond Britain, you have to actually put in the extra effort, and like, maybe like people just don't like realize that, or like yeah, can think to consider like okay, we're going to actually need to actually do the extra research that we wouldn't normally have to do if we were just doing Britain again. I think some people would respond like, but hey, there were um, Asian British actors in the episode. Uh, the director is Chinese, um, therefore isn't the onus on them or, you know, wouldn't they have like brought up if something was weird? Um, and it reminds me, Gig, you remember when we watched the, uh, yes, I can know what you're about to talk about. Show, <laughs> yes, yes. Whose yes. intrepid showrunner, Damon Lindelof, <laughs> just decided that he would not hire 
you know, like a consultant or a like sensitivity checker um, for all the Vietnamese stuff he wanted to use in the show. What he would do is he would just ask um, the Asian American actress on the show with Vietnamese parents uh, <laughs> what would fly and what would not. So this actress, not getting paid extra, um, she's only being paid as an actor, is getting bothered by the showrunner coming, can we do this? Like, is this okay? Like, can you imagine what's that? what that's like if you're an actor or you're a director, especially if you're like a um, not a super established one? Um, imagine what that's like if the showrunner is asking you, um, is this okay? But then imagine what it's like if the showrunner isn't asking you. What if no one's asking you, um, is this cool or does this make sense or would you do it a different way? If no one's asking you that, are you going to bring it up? I don't know. So I think even the element that like someone should be an expert on that stuff just because of their ethnicity, I think yeah. is again, even by itself, that's a strange assumption. And it'd be really awkward if you're put into that position, you're not actually some sort of an expert. Like it's a weird kind of diaspora sort of problem. Like if you just get assumed to have all the cultural knowledge in your head, like what, you're not necessarily will. And it's like will. even, what if they think something that like a lot of other people wouldn't think? <laughs> like what if... um that actress on Watchmen thought something was okay that maybe most Vietnamese wouldn't think is okay. Like, it's like, we're, it's just, it's such a dehumanizing thing to be like, yeah, it's I can compress, like, like um, in, if, in terms of China, like, I can compress over one billion people's opinions into, you know, one director or, you know, one actress with um, Chinese parents or grandparents or whatever. It's like, it's just insanely dehumanizing and awful. Yeah, it's it's why you know it's why research and actually talking to people and consultants mm. and stuff that that's why all of that is the thing you know you know it's, you actually you know talk to people engage with the world you don't know, just try and take yeah. shortcuts which is what everyone's basically suggesting you know take the shortcut I I think even the dynamic of like someone coming and saying is this okay what I'm doing it's even like it's a weird way to start because it's like I've already put the work in to make this are you gonna say I'm okay. Um, or are you going to tell me to do more work by fixing it? Like it's it's a whole messed up. Mm. The whole dynamic of it um, isn't right, if you ask me. Well, if I'm floating around this topic, I should get more into it. When people learned that this episode would have like Chinese elements to it, Chinese characters, Chinese history, people learned this through leaks or the official press release. You got a lot of talk, <laughs> didn't you? It's uh, well, you get ah, uh, it's. You know, when Syria appeared in Can You Hear Me, I didn't see a ton of people start squawking out judgments on millions of Syrian people in the world um, because Syria was in the episode. Um, but time and time again, when some UK or US fiction has something to do with China, I see so many people salivate and like rub their hands together with this glee um, and getting to babble whatever racist shit <laughs> they have to say about China and Chinese people and these insane judgments they're going to make on literally over a billion people. I'm like, I'm, we all saw that stuff like um, people. So before the episode even aired, people start bubbling up. Oh, I've heard China find something offensive in this episode. Oh, we get to talk shit about the Chinese senses, the spooky Chinese people that are, you know, oh, they're fucking up our episodes or whatever. Like, it's it's before anything's even happened. Just the mere word China is like exploding racism out of people. It's insane. And so China find anything offensive. You start seeing people rumor monger about this before anyone's even seen the fucking thing. And it's like it, just the, the joy that people get 
to go smear their racism to over a billion people. It just does my head in. It's so disgusting. And I see so many people doing it before the episode and doing it after the episode now. How can they not look at themselves? It just, it, 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 it blows my mind. The, the, the arrogance that people have. And it's just, it's just, I didn't, when other episodes are set in other countries, I don't see this so much. Like I didn't see any weird, serious shit um, with, with, can you hear me? Or when, Oh, uh, maybe um, you know when the whole Sontar replacing Russia thing happened, there was a mm. bit of like, a, not so much racial theme, but there was a kind of like a Russophobic kind of vein that cropped up yeah. out there. I think, yeah, I think it's when when it, when its countries in particular have some sort of like geopolitical kind of um, when there's any sort of awkwardness in terms of like the West versus like you know other sort of large powers in the world, and it just that's when all the kind of the craziness kind of comes out. I think the one relief of this episode being so shallow and so not engaged with like uh, the setting or history at all is that we didn't get the level of insane yeah. discourse that I was worried we were going to get. Yeah, same. Like, none of that happened ultimately. I, it just it boils my blood that like when me being Australian, um, you know, might come up in conversation here. Like, none of you start talking about Australia's government or, like, Australia's political leaders or anything. It's just, like, it's like, you know how Jodie Whittaker gets, oh, because she's the first woman doctor. Um, She represents all women and she has to do right by all women and that kind of insanity. And like we were just saying, like, the one, you know, Asian person on a production has to deal with all this, like, you you are treated as the sole, you know, Asia person in the world. Where How are we going to judge you? It just does my head end that you like you just bring up the word China here and people leap to like make these huge political like exclamations and talk about all this nonsense. Like so I was relieved that the episodes itself um, didn't really hook into. Well, I was frustrated that the Chinese history wasn't much an aspect of the episode because it's really interesting uh, with our historical figure and the stuff she got up to. Um, but it's a relief that Chibnall didn't. <laughs> to do what he, what he might have done he didn't have his russia type of attitude towards china here so that was nice but man the fandom it's just it just it's insane to me the people are so eager to be racist and i i can't stand it it's like an awkward feeling when you almost can't trust like a cultural product like doctor who to actually extend beyond its borders mm. to any real degree in case something kind of crazy mm. and terrible happens like i mean i really like demons of the punjab that's like an unqualified yeah. pretty much success in that front but like it can so easily just go wrong and just start some like just whack nonsense just because just because people are just oh there's just so much blooming yeah yeah <sighs> yeah my expectation was gonna be that um there will be very little Phasman stuff in the episode and people would go, oh, the Chinese census. You know, they, they got to it. They got to the episode. They cut out the gay stuff because that's what happens, right? I saw a headline on Forbes that China hate gay people or black people or something and they cut them out of movies. That's I saw a headline about it somewhere. That makes a billion people evil to me. It was definitely true. You know, there's, 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 there's definitely no more to this than what I saw in a headline. Like, So I was anticipating all this nonsense about the episode being crimped down by all the spooky Chinese senses, you know, behind closed doors. But yeah, that didn't happen. So, <laughs> that's yeah, like, the, the Phasmin like, stuff was, um, there was more Phasmin than I expected, actually. Yeah, that did surprise me. Um, that, I don't know about you guys, the kind of nature of the Phasmin stuff in the episode didn't surprise me, um, but the amount of it did. 
Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that, actually. Like, just in terms of where it went as a story, like, nothing surprising at all. Like, arguably, it's where some of us were predicting it would go. But just in terms of how much screen time it, like, occupied, the fact it, the fact it occurred kind of popped up throughout the episode rather than just being dumped at the end. That was, that was a mild surprise. The, so, uh, to bring things back to Woman Who Fell to Earth, because um, we're getting all circular because the year is ending, you remember... Uh, the doctor in that episode stayed behind for um, Grace's funeral. So, uh, gone were the days of the 12th Doctor's uh, callousness. Uh, we'd entered a new Doctor who was more emotionally in tune uh, with people, who um more in tune with relationships and attachment and commitment uh, to people, right? She stayed behind for the funeral. Uh, and so, we've seen this carried through Um in her, <laughs> in her relationship with her companions over time, because because uh, what does she do in this episode with Yaz? She basically confirms that she has feelings for Yaz, and also that she's not gonna act on them in any way. Well, are we all believing the Doctor um, when she says, "Oh, I totally have feelings for you too," but yeah, we can't act mm, on them. That's an like, interesting question. I I didn't believe it. Um, but I'm seeing most people believed it. So, is am I reading it weirdly, or what? What do you think, Gig? Um, see, the line that Missy brought up at the start of our discussion, when she says, "Well, if it would be anyone, it would be you." Like, um, I agree. It is a kind of it is sort of a that sort of doctory kind of alien way of framing things. But at the same time, like nonetheless, the implication of it is that it it isn't Yaz. You know, if it was anyone, <laughs> it would be you. But it, it's not. <laughs> like, it's so it's awkward. Like, I think it's it's not. It's not a line you can really necessarily take a huge amount of um, uh, emotional um, clarity or investment from because I just think it's like it's so abstracted. I think from actual like confessing of feelings, if you know what I mean. And the doctor basically says later, "I've never really been able to have a relationship with anyone," uh, and that's also not really true. Um, and so, like, it's why the doctor felt insincere to be here. It's like, oh, um, I totally like you as much. Um, yeah, if it was going to be anyone I was dating, it'd be you. But I never really do that. Like, it's all these kind of... It's like, if if, if anyone listening's ever been rejected, do not recognise the kind of um, emotional through lines behind these kinds of dialogues. It's not you, it's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, now I'm, now I'm rethinking the entirety of Thasmin. Oh. It's, 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 again, it's like the... Um, I think you're one of the greatest people I've ever known, like talking to like five-year-olds. Placating <laughs> yeah. nothingness. Uh, it's quite, it's patronizing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it rings weirdly because this episode revitalizes the Dan and Di romance, um, which ended on a sad note with Flux, but is resurrected here as Di has been thinking about Dan and wants to talk to him again. <laughs> and so the episode did progress one romance, like in a positive romancy way. Um, but Yaz got, companion zoned now uh, we got it the wrong way around we thought we were getting queer romance but really we got queer comma romance <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 the what do we think of how river was brought up in the episode that's really interesting 
See, the way that came off to me, like the fact that the first time Yaz even hears about the Doctor having had past relationships and a wife is just like, as she's being pretty much like, you know, companion zoned, as you put it, the Doctor just randomly brings up, oh, I've had past relationships before and a wife. You know, I've, I've been married to a woman before, <laughs> just not you. Okay? Not you yeah. It's like, it's that way of suddenly expanding the scope of what Yaz knows about the Doctor's life all of a sudden to make Yaz appear very small and insignificant mm. next to all of it. And obviously that may not have been like, you know, intentional or whatever, but like, that's how it comes off. It feels demeaning to Yaz. It's very belittling of her. Like Yaz, you don't you don't even amount to like one tenth. But also kind of rubbing salt in Yaz's wound in terms of like, oh yeah, I've loved women before, but now I'm just I'm I've sworn off of that. You you suck. You don't count. Yeah, it's so weird to me because Yaz, I can't fix myself to anyone. I've never been able to. Exactly. I'm also going to bring up River, who I fixed myself to for 24 years. Like it's just it's like when we have that. You know, oh, you shouldn't have killed the sea devil. <gasps> Base Dan, you know, slashing all the sea devils, like within the same sequence. It's like this bizarre contradicting yourself along this in the same episode type of thing. I found the whole selfishness of it at the end really weird as well. Just the extent to which, oh, I can't, I can't commit to you, Yaz, because you know, we are, uh, I'm because of the time laws, we have to part ways, and it will hurt me. <laughs> it's like, really, like, really, are you the only one who matters here? Like, you, you're an immortal, an immortal time lord alien. You know, I think you'll fucking live. You have before. Like, wh why are you so like? It's just, uh, it's just weird. I don't like how much it just stamps over Yaz and her feelings. Am I unclear on the whole threat to the Doctor from uh, what Time told her at the end of Flux? Because is the Doctor thinking she's going to like die for good or is she just scared about regenerating? This is important for the next thing I'm going to say. What's the actual issue here? What's going to happen to the Doctor? What does I she think is going to happen? I think it's explicitly supposed to be about that she's going to regenerate. But that gets kind of parlayed in this episode into a general kind of curse the time lords things aren't gonna be the same whatever and yeah. also i guess the implicit the implicit kind of meta aspect that yaz is going to leave because it's the end of the chip era the so it's like it's not actually a coherent thing but it's just all floating around i feel like something being unquestioned here though is so is the implication that the next doctor won't like yaz <laughs> quite possibly why would know. that be the case the ninth and the tenth doctors both like rose um like i is is it just like, well, it's so unquestioned that I don't know what to think. Is it like the doctor thinking my personality is going to be so different? I won't like Yaz. Does the doctor not like Yaz now? And <laughs> no, it's not going to change. Like, I don't quite understand the mechanics of the what she's saying to Yaz here. I don't have an, an universe explanation, but the whole, it's so written like Chimnall's just tidying it all up because his era's over. Yeah. And that is, that is like, just having this negative impact on the entire relationship. It's like, well, what, this doesn't really make sense. It's like, yeah, well, it's because it's, it's working around these self-imposed constraints of setting up a relationship in the last three episodes of your run and then having to not commit to it. And so you just have these weird nothing conversations on the beach that aren't about anything. There's a great scene in that, um, Richard Curtis time travel movie about time where the um dorky main guy is um is like flirting with Margot Robbie's character over like a summer or something and then on the last day he goes there and he's like oh you know I really like you could you know something happen between us and she lets him down gently by like saying oh if you'd approached me on the first day of our summer together I would have said yes alas you know our time together is over and he's like oh okay that's you know very sad fair enough and then he uses his time travel powers to go back <laughs> and um, 
like do what she suggested. And then her character lets him down by saying, oh, um, how about we see how we go for the whole summer together? Then on the last day together, I'll see what I think. Um, and he realizes that the particulars of how she's letting him down don't matter. Um, she's just politely letting him down and she's going to say anything to let him down. Um, and I completely get that vibe with how the doctor talks to Yaz here, where it's like the specifics of what she's saying don't really matter. It's just like she's going to channel this rejection into however she can phrase it. I was a different man back then. Um, I can't do this now. Or, oh, it'll hurt me. Or, oh, I'm going to regenerate. You know, it's like it, it just feels so much like like an insincere rejection to me rather than an actual like Toby Whithouse, Dr. Angsting. Oh, it's the curse of the time lords that I can't ever. I don't get that vibe. I get the I'm trying to nicely say no to this person vibe. I think the trouble is, like, when the Doctor says stuff like, oh, Yaz, you're one of the greatest person, like, people I've ever met. Like, obviously, because we've actually watched the show, we we take that as totally insincere, like, garbage and nonsense and because it's so shallow and because the relationship has been so, like, flimsy <laughs> over the course of the run. But, like, when Chib and co. write lines like that in, like, I think they're meant to be taken as... as uh, they're meant to be taken kind of sincerely. Like, when the Doctor says, oh, we can't have a universe without Yaz. Like, she's been saying stuff like that since Series 11, right? And it's like... Well, and that's meant to be some sort of actual bond or relationship that they have. Otherwise, you know, none of it makes any sense. So it's like it doesn't like it doesn't play right or doesn't like come off like realistically or humanly very well. But uh, I think in terms of um what's what's what they're trying to convey, I don't think that, I think like I think they're trying to convey the Doctor is sincere somehow. But it's just that of course the characters are so crap that it just can never work. Any anyone listening to this, uh, seriously, please comment because I'm really interested to know um, how sincere do you find the Doctor's letdowns of Yaz here? Because I think this is really interesting um, that this is open to multiple readings. I really want to know what people besides us three think in terms of to what extent is this a rejection or is she being like totally on the level or is she like being insincere? I, I think this is a really interesting question. I think my 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 boring response is that I I think it's sincere purely because I don't think that this era this writing has been conducive to any sort of like ulterior motives that characters ever have. Mm-hmm. Things are just surface level all the time. So there's no real reason to assume that like it would be different for this. Even in that I mean when the episode invokes River like it's giving the viewer the tools to inter- <laughs> interpret it insincerely if you ask me it's saying I can never attach myself to someone. I had a wife I attached myself to for over two decades. You know, like, I feel even if Jody isn't trying to play it this way, the episode's give, <laughs> giving you an allowance to read it like that. Yeah, no, that's fair. But then again, we, we that's just the same as the, like, killing the sea devils thing. It's like, oh, killing the sea devils is bad. Dan mm. killing the sea devils is funny. Yeah. It, it feels like lots of this episode and lots of this era are just, like, compartmentalized, where, like, you're not supposed to, apply the logic of one scene to another everything just exists like as it is yeah. in that moment when it comes to um like yaz i get a sense of maybe a kind of on chibnall's part maybe a de- certain degree of contempt towards like the whole idea of like thasmin and like and and yaz actually 
and Yaz is feelings actually being reciprocated or whatever. In the same sense that frequently on the show, Chip has kind of made this weird kind of spectacle out of the Doctor's pacifism and different elements of the show like that. Like the idea of Doctor companion romance is getting this weird short shrift, which leads to him throwing in like references to River and stuff. And just to like supposedly writing the Doctor is sincere, but like subtextually it comes off as just so so like contemptuous of the idea that Yas could ever matter like there's just this weird like not quite explicit like like vibe <laughs> like this is like unpleasant like attitude towards it all which I think is really awkward considering how sensitive of a matter like Thasmin and queer representation is like with the show and the fan base well I think even if we don't agree on whether the Doctor is sincere or not I think we can agree that the excuse the Doctor gives in terms of well it will be temporary therefore we shouldn't do it I think we can agree that's not a very good excuse like no, or not a very philosophically sound excuse one way or the other. least romantic thing in the world that um, it's temporary so let's just not change anything let's uh. oh and then the, 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 the wish at the end it's like oh man <laughs> like we're in this terrible situation I wish it was like this forever I wish you were friend zoned with it's me so, forever. She's so selfish. Like Yaz is it's yearning so, like, here. Tone deaf. Like Yaz isn't in a happy state that um the doctor is just like leading them on, and the doctor's like, let's preserve this status quo forever. That's but, but Yaz isn't happy. The doctor's not being. The doctor's saying I get hurt if I commit, so let's keep it like now. And the greatest person she's ever met, Yaz, is being hurt by being like spurned. But let's keep it like this because I'm more comfortable like this. It's just selfishness. Amanda plays it as like Yaz is genuinely distressed at hearing that wish. Yeah. Yeah, my favourite bit of acting from Amanda in the episode was when when the doctor suddenly like blithely says, Oh, I'm not a bad day, am I? And just like the just like the colour drains from Yaz's face, <laughs> just like, oh my god, yeah. she like she actually said it. <laughs> like I, I love that. It's just that, that that scene was kind of fascinating. Just the doctor awkwardly like accidentally being romantic without even thinking about it and just like really <laughs> poor Yaz honestly poor Yaz Yaz's <sighs> kind of subordinate nature uh, to the doctor it's like her character will get undercut by whatever uh, needs the doctor has like in a scene um, as a character or like in terms of the character's own interiority uh, Missy how do you see the shot where um it's from the same not a bad date am I thing where the TARDIS is underwater. Uh, why is Yaz freaked out by the TARDIS being underwater there? Oh, Yaz is freaked out in the TARDIS being underwater there because um, she needs to set up the reveal of the beautiful underwater scene. Mm. So does, it it make not, any, does it make any sense for Yaz, it, a companion it, it of so many years? Zero like, sense. The TARDIS logically. can exist underwater? Like, my, my mind has been forever blown. How can the TARDIS exist underwater? It makes zero sense. But, like I was saying about how the Chibera, like every scene is compartmentalized and exists in its own world, Yaz in that moment is playing the role of setting up that shot. So she has to say, Oh my gosh, we can't open the doors. So the doctor can be like, oh yes, we can. Boom. Beautiful ocean shot. And One then the, yeah. Yaz can become Yaz again so that they can have the awkward romance thing. And then they say oxygen bubble at the same time. Yeah, because <laughs> because she's Yaz again. Didn't resolution open with the, the Yaz and the doctor and the other two being like outside the tightest doors in space, visiting like a bunch of different fireworks in space? Like, uh, but you see, space is different to water. So. 
I have to wonder if that, that, that bit of like Yaz is like not knowing what's going to happen when the doctor opens the doors. Like, I wonder, obviously, it's just speculation. Like, you wonder, like, which, which writer maybe did that? Was that maybe on the part of like, because we know the original drafts of the story were by a new writer and then Chibnall did the final draft. Like, maybe if someone who didn't know anything about the doctor or Yaz, I'm just blowing in for their first script, maybe might write something like that in if they didn't like think to like check whether Yaz would know this. But then it could also be something Chib would throw in just because he's not thinking. Like, you can't really make conclusions at this point can you we we should talk more about the writing i uh, know you've brought that up um so the episode written by ella road and chris chimnall like it says in the title card the specifics of how that worked and i'm reading from doctor Who magazine 576 is uh in the words of ella road the co-writer i did the first three drafts and then i handed over my final draft to chris chimnall who did a big kind of cleanup. It was such a quick turnaround. Even before I'd finished the first draft, I was already in meetings with the CGI team and the costume people and all the amazing creative people they have on Doctor Who talking about what we wanted. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the least stressful way of working, but it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, so she wrote like all the drafts and then Chibnall did the final like pass. That's interesting. I mean, I guess it's very in character for the era at this point to be having to, you know, lock in CGI and prosthetic stuff like before even like a first draft is is finished. It's like I mean, it just that that pretty much leads to everything you can think of when it comes to like the past few years of this era and just things being I mean, the, the situation for the, the the production team, the people who work on the show, having to like work with script changes and shit like so to such a insane degree. Like you have to feel for them. Ah. Uh- our other co-writer, Chibnall, um, I like, I, it's interesting how he introduces the episode in the magazine here. Um, he said, <laughs> he's, I'm going to read verbatim from the magazine. Pre-production on Legend of the Sea Devils began when the Doctor Who production team was looking forward to life beyond the threat of COVID. No one could have predicted that it would be screened at a time when Europe was preoccupied by a very different menace. We knew we'd need escapism more than ever, says showrunner and co-writer Chris Chimnall. But I don't think we realised we'd need it this much. <laughs> you got to love Chimnall's just random, like, just the way he just suddenly gets super, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's so him. It's, the episode has nothing to do, to do with it, and he just has to lead into it that way. Uh, it's so melodramatic. Like, why is Doctor Who magazine talking about Europe preoccupied by a different menace? It's just, I hate this so much. It's just, it's such like a Hollywood way to talk about, you know, <laughs> real people dying. We really need a pillar of hope. We need escapism more than ever. It's just, I, yeah, I hate it so use much. use it to justify episodes of your TV show. Like, oh, we need Doctor Who more than ever. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> you justify your, your shitty TV show by invoking real people dying. I just, <laughs> yes, yes. I, but people in Britain really need, really need the comfort of Doctor yeah, Who right now. Yeah. People are dying on the other side of the world. <laughs> it's, so, it's just, it's so infantile. I, I really hate it. Um, but the other interesting stuff uh, Chibnall brings up, uh, the episode there is um, we wanted to do a story about a pirate queen and we had a script in development for Flux. We couldn't make that work in time for all sorts of reasons, but it still seemed like a great idea. 
well, that's interesting. We wanted to do a story about a pirate queen, but he doesn't name her specifically. Maybe my idea that she was just kind of, her name just applied to a generic role later is true. I seem to recall, didn't we know, didn't Ella Road say that she came up with the specific, like, pirate queen to actually I write think, about? yeah. There was something like that, wasn't there? I seem to remember she said something. Like but that. I think that's what happened, yeah. So that, that might track. I could see Chib just like, okay, we need a pirate queen. Yeah. <laughs> we have a pirate who's a woman. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, it could be this one. <laughs> that he would, says that here, would track with the final episode so much. He says, we dropped the original story when we started thinking about Madame Ching. Um, okay. So, so there was a story, presumably about a, some other pirate queen, and then they dropped that? Like, I, I, don't I, I don't think it really matters. It's her it doesn't matter. role in the episode is just like pirate queen whose crew is gone. Um this is a weird quote, he says. Um, you could spend a lot of time trying to invent a nemesis for a story set on the seas of historical China, but then you realise that it would be amazing to put a different tribe or sect of sea devils to what we've seen before into this setting. That's <laughs> what? You're right, that is, a, that is a very strange quote. You could spend a lot of time trying to invent a nemesis for a story in historical China, but then you realise the sea devils are around. It, that's a, what he's describing there is being a writer. Yeah, it's, it's he could spend crazy. a lot of time inventing. Why sea devils? Like, what kind of connection of logic? I mean, I guess they have this word sea in their title, so maybe I guess a, a story set at sea, like, sure, but like, I don't know. <laughs> the fact that it's like, yeah. oh, a different sect, that's so interesting. Like, no, it isn't. <laughs> what the hell's he on about? He says, it says... Chibnall acknowledges that depicting the sea devils in 19th century Asia was ambitious, um, but then he just like, it's just like about the set. Um, <laughs> so I don't really feel much curiosity about the setting here. It's um, like, I'm all for the show doing stuff in historical China. I think that's awesome. Um, but this doesn't really seem much like On the, um- interest. On the writing front, I seem to recall Ella Rhodes said something like she thought there would be a story for her to write when she was brought in, but they told her, okay, we want you to make it up. <laughs> so it's like, as she, so she had to kind of like devise the story pretty much from, from scratch, like when she was brought into to the project. And I, I just feel like that whole sense of um, maybe rushedness and like the lack of a, of a real brief, much of a coherent brief like beforehand, just sort of... Just the rushedness of everything really pervades the episode. I mean, it's that's how it feels. It feels like an episode that was just like dashed out like as quickly as possible and with as little preparation ah, yes. as possible. Yeah. Yes, I found the Chibnall quote. Ella Road came to us with the idea of Madame Ching, this incredible character from history, and it all knitted together thanks for her. Thanks to her. So yeah, that's that's the workflow of how this happened. I think I was just thinking right now that um Ella Road coming in on such short notice and having to do this in such a small period of time that plus the sea devils could be why there's such a non-entity in this story because like is 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 ella rose that familiar with the sea devils that's a good point like doing what's essentially a nostalgia premise for you know boomer classic who fans and getting a getting a poor fresh writer you know the baptism by fire of having to write them it's like oh well no wonder you know Actually, there's been a lot of, like, there was a lot of whinging on Gallifrey Base after the ratings figures for this episode came out and how much people hated it. And there was a lot of complaining about the fact it was a new writer and a new director. And, oh, they they, they weren't experienced enough. And I think 
you can make a fair case that if you're trying to rush out an episode like this, you need more experienced hands. But at the same time, I think putting like an excessive amount of like uh, scrutiny on like who the staff were and the fact they got new people, like you know, at the end of the day, like getting new people is a good thing. Like the problem is that the story sucks ass and the characters suck ass. <laughs> it's like there's no point blaming the staff, you know. It's yeah, it's not like the last two three seasons were like yeah. flawless things yeah. to the old hands on deck. Like, come on. Uh, Ella, another quote from Ella wrote is, it was kind of a mad, accelerated process. I was bought on board on the Thursday and I was in Wales by the Monday brainstorming with Chris and the amazing script editors. So it was kind of an immediate entry into literally deep sea diving. When they first called me up, I assumed they'd have a story and they wanted me to write the episode, but they also wanted me to help come up with a story, which was great. We had three really intense days at the beginning, sitting in Chris's house in Wales, just coming up with stuff. And the result was a geofluoromagnetic uh, <laughs> pirate. <laughs> Reversing stone that glows on A stone that can glow unexpectedly. Yeah. <laughs> so the director has an interesting thing that she says in the same uh, magazine issue. Uh, when she's talking about the big sword fight um, towards the end of the episode, uh, she says the whole crew were pretty angry at me for about three days because of how complicated all that was. When I was explaining all the blocking, people were tired of just listening to it. The actors hadn't had much time for rehearsal. And in the script, it's quite freely written. It's just, mm. quote, they fight and they end up here, end quote. So we had <laughs> oh to figure it out as we went along. Yeah, that sound, that tracks. But that was great fun, having the freedom to choreograph the whole thing. We were exhausted by the end of it, but hopefully people will think it was worth it. Yeah, unfortunately, that just sounds like example 7 billion of the Chib era, like not having time to do stuff and Chaos and Cardiff and all that. Yeah. Yeah, it's the whole thing of like, oh, let's let's we have a Doctor Who budget and no time. Let's do a gigantic like sword fight with a load of people. Like, I mean, who who the hell is watching Doctor Who and actually wants the bloody action scenes all over the place? Like, come on. Like, I mean, maybe you can get away with it if it's like two actors, you know, tenant sword fighting with them in Sycorax or whatever. But like, you know, it's just, it always turns into such a like clusterfuck. Like, even when Moffat was doing it in like Day of the Moon, the blooming the blooming gunfight scene with the river and the silence, it's like it's all over the place. Like, we just, we just these these scenes are not what people come to Doctor Who for. I refuse to believe it. You know, I really have such... Yeah, I don't know. The reused shot um, where we're like below the sea devil who's swiping the sword. Um, I feel like I was being hypnotised in the village I'm seeing towards the start of the episode where we get like over a dozen of like the same um, type of shot. It's an ambitious sequence, the one toward the end. Like it totally is. And I admire that it's not all from like the one angle or anything. Like the director is trying to get a bit of coverage there, but something about the Sea Devils and a lot of things really just didn't quite cohere right. Do you guys feel this or Orphan Fifty Five was the bigger production like mess in terms of how it's how it comes across on screen? Because I'm not sure. I've seen comparisons, but I, I feel like Orphan Fifty Five was. Um, was a bit more like <laughs> like we don't see like and this episode yeah. has loads of that too with the doctor just kind of going geronimo and then she's on the other ship but like it doesn't feel quite off 55 level i think this feels more shambolic overall with the writing being a mess but often 55 feels more shambolic visually 
because it's really obvious how the dregs are incorporated not with you know other people like that it's i think it's more obvious visually that something went weird and wrong there i agree but saying that the sea devil's faces are obviously not what was I don't think you need a leak or anything to say that that can't have been what they wanted. The way the sea devils' faces stretch around and their amulets move, and so they're kind of talking like, not they're not really like tangibly talking. Like it, this was no one's first choice, surely. Yeah, that weird effect that they had, like they, you see them digitally, like trying to warp the sea devil's face to make it look like it was talking. Just it looked utterly shit. It's just very, very strange. The thing is with that kind of thing. Uh, you remember before before series eleven even started, how much Chibnall and Stevens were bringing up the Marvel shows, the Hulu shows, all these prestige shows. It's all well and good to bring those up and say you want Doctor Who to compete with it, but it's not when you're doing stuff like that you know i think people whine about the budget way too much i think some of the most beloved you know by like normal people and by not just british people either episodes are low budget ones with some wacky stuff in that regard but there's a difference between being low budget and like just kind of fucking stuff up like those sea devils you the money didn't have to be spent that way. Something clearly went wrong to have to be digitally moving their faces like that. It looks bad in a way that, you know, like, um, uh, think of Rings of Akaten. Um, they don't have the budget that Star Wars does to do those to do those prosthetics and those alien heads. So they mightn't look as swish as Star Wars gets to do when J.J. Abrams orders certain alien heads or whatever. But they're, they all look like they're achieving what they want to achieve. You know, like they've got alien heads... And they're moving like the way you'd expect the alien heads to move. Actual actors are moving them. When you've got like a digital little stretch around the sea devil's mouth, it looks like a fan film because it looks like nobody's first choice was for it to work that way. And so I think that's what makes the show look not in peerage with other genre shows. It's it's not the budget. It's how stuff is accomplished. And I think it comes back to planning probably hmm. a lot of it. Like the drag costumes, I don't think are the issue. It's that the dregs clearly aren't in shot with the other characters a lot of the time, and the episode is really choppily edited. That's the thing that makes it not stand in peerage uh, with other shows. I think it's not. It's not. People kind of conflate this with budget, and I don't think it's exactly the same thing. I think it's more: is an episode achieving what it looks like it's trying to visually achieve? Um, and it 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 can it can do that with a small budget. But if you get over ambitious or you don't plan enough or something, you get this nonsense like digitally stretching a mask like that. And it just, it doesn't look right. Um, and it doesn't look right because the prosthetic is cheap or anything. It doesn't look right because nobody wants to be digitally s- stretching a snarl onto a face. That doesn't, it's not what's, t- what's done. It looks really weird. I guess at the same time, when it comes to the Sea Devils and this whole episode, there's a degree that no one really cared about making it come across as good like by the end because the sort of person the sort of people who'd be like thrilled by the return of the sea devils who have been like hankering at the bit for a sea devil's return for years now are just they're just not gonna care like and i guess because this is chibnall's penultimate episode and he's already on the way out and rtd2 is already locked in like no one on production side's gonna care no one's on the bbc side's gonna care no one cares yeah. and this is how we get tv like this no one cares yeah Oh, I have, I have two big things left. I want to say. Um, 
one's a general thing about how characterization is done and the other's just Chibnall spouting nonsense. Which one do you want me to do first? Maybe do characterization first, being safe Chibnall nonsense for okay. <laughs> the last one. Um, I think this episode is a great example. Uh, there are a lot of great examples of this in the era. Um, resolution's a really good one, uh, in particular, of the kind of approach to writing so often in this era is so bad in that what it does is, you know, a really good story you might say a lot of people will think is when there's a kind of unity of purpose and like the action scenes inform the character scenes, which inform the the thematics and it's all like kind of linked together, you know, like in a, um, lots of movies and TV are, are you know, are great with this. Like, uh, Oh, Chibnall used to bring up Westworld in 2018 um, when he was talking about other great shows. Uh, I think of the action scene, like in the first episode of Westworld and that's not just like, Oh, it's an action scene. It's telling you a lot about the world and so it's telling you a lot about the characters and how that action scene is functioning and how it's being directed. It's it's saying a lot about what the show is and what it's doing. It's not like, here's our action episode, here's our action scene and then later we do our character scene with Dolores or whatever. No, it's it's connected. Uh, the action scene is telling you something about the characters. You remember in Resolution when there's the Dalek plot and then we cut and Ryan and his dad are just talking and it's completely disconnected from everything but they're having a sit-down character scene. Mm. Yeah, it's like when the Doctor and Yaz talk, it's not really connected to anything to do with the Sea Devils or anything to do with anything. It's just like a kind of independent follow-up on the Eve of the Daleks, Thasman stuff. Uh, And I find it really wearying to watch where it's like, here's our main plot and then here's our Thasman scene. And then here's it's like nothing is really cohering. Or connected. It's like here is the scene for the character, and here is the scene for the villain of the week. It, why can't we knit these all together into the same thing? It's like it's so bizarre to me. This historical figure and the Sea Devils both have connections to colonization, and the episode does nothing with it. And then, but then it's like we're not even trying to connect the villain of the week to anything to do with the characters. It's just like it, nothing is connecting at all. It's why the it all feels so interchangeable, like so Mad Libs. Because what's the point of the Sea Devils? Or the Chinese setting in the episode because it doesn't really connect with anything. It's not. It's not really relevant to anything. It's just like here's the story for the week, and so I hate when it's just like, oh, two characters are going to sit down and talk now. That's the character scene, and then we're going to go back to the story of the week. Resolution does it. This does it. I think it's really poor writing. I think a fun counterexample in terms of how would you uh, knit stuff about two characters' relationship into the plot, the sci-fi plot or whatever. And this isn't, this isn't an example that is particularly well-received by people, but it kind of illustrates what you're talking about. In Asylum of the Daleks, you have those whole um, the Dalek nanomachines trying to convert Amy into one of them. And we have that scene where Rory like has to Rory tries to get Amy to take his thingy midiggy off him because, because the story logic means that, according to Rory, he will not be as easily converted or whatever. And obviously it's all complete nonsense, but it's at least a way of getting the plot to actually like feed in to what is going on with the characters for whatever reason. Obviously, in that case, the, the character stuff is kind of contrived too, so it doesn't work that well. But at the very least, like there is a sense that an attempt has been made to actually 
knit the story and the th- the ideas of the story into something that could happen with the characters. Like, with the Sea Devils thing, there's no sense that they started out with what kind of story would develop uh, 13 and Yaz's relationship in a good way. They just have some really generic crap story, and then they stop halfway through <laughs> to, like, have the Doctor and Yaz occasionally talk about the stuff that they ought to be talking about. So, yeah, it was, it's all just very disconnected um, puzzle pieces that aren't assembled into, like, a picture. You know, it's just like, disparate things. Kind of building blocks approach. If someone was more generous than me, they could suggest that some subset of fans who complain about, oh, this era is so on the nose or whatever, are maybe identifying this kind of intangible detail of how the era just kind of cleaves, like, here's the scene about X and here's the scene about Y, and we don't really connect, you know, the premise of an episode with the character scenes. It's all just kind of its own thing. Uh, if you're more generous than me, you could suggest some people pick that up and then express that through, oh, the era is so um, didactic or whatever. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't help that, like, when when the when the era does decide to get didactic, which like it rarely does. Like, but an episode, and it's like well, fifty five. Like, it does, honest to god, feel so dis- disconnected and just random. Yeah. Like, at the end of that episode, the doctor just giving that speech, and she just doesn't even finish her sentence. Like, <laughs> or and just cut to the drag <laughs> yelling at the screen. It's like, yeah, again, the the problem is not being didactic. Really, the problem is just being like incoherent and just not like really knitted together at all. Mm. But yeah. Um, are you ready for some Chibnall talk? Hell yeah! Okay, a recent Chibnall interview has some interesting stuff in it. Uh, we should capture while we're in this pre-centenary, very briefly post Sea Devils era. Uh so I'll just read out a few things he said in this interview. React to whatever you want to. That we made Doctor Who at all during the past two years is a miracle, admits Chibnall. There was a point around April-May 2020 where it looked like we'd have to call it a day after two series. If we hadn't already planned to leave after series three, that is 13, there's no way I'd be staying on now after going through that experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, the they they really overcame just a bit too much. You know, they they fought hard. Mm. They overcame the, the 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 despair of COVID. You know, it must have been all that lockdown who motivating them yeah. to keep fighting on. <laughs> like, oh, uh, maybe farewell, Sarah Jane. Influence yeah. <laughs> um, the the trailer we got at the end of this episode. Who knows? Mm. Um, this is interesting because I don't. I think. Um, this might be the first time we know this. He says regarding Eva the Daleks, we had to ditch our original idea and I had to write a new script in just over a week. You can't just go, right, we've got the series and then we'll do the specials. You're constantly on this treadmill. It's kind of interesting like to hear yeah. like that tip the, the specific period of time like obviously RTD has a uh, had his like rushing to the finish I mean he does when you yeah. write an episode in three days you get lost of the time lords and when um uh yeah well I'll just let, leave that hanging but um yeah I guess that that tracks with Eve certainly it's a kind of episode you could write very quickly I know we're not big ratings guys um of course this episode did get lower ratings than a repeat of Antiques Roadshow. Um, and so regarding that sort of thing, um, ratings and whatnot, in this interview, Chibnall says, 
Well, the article says, asked how much consideration Chibnall gives to fandom, Chibnall is blunt. Chibnall says, absolute zero. That was the advice from both Russell and Stephen. Chibnall had a vision for a three-series arc and delivered it. Any other worries, such as whether Doctor Who's weekly release pattern is an outlier in the streaming age, is above Chibnall's pay grade. I don't really care um, that much about not paying attention to the fandom stuff. um, Because like he says, Russell and Stephen said it as well. Um, But I understand why that would incense some people. I think it's interesting that when he talks about not giving consideration to the fandom, like, well, he he does his own fan wank enough. Like, it's sort of like, yeah. <laughs> like it barely makes a difference. You know, it's it's some weird paradigm of fandom that he is actually responding to, but one that exists in his own brain, <laughs> where Morbius doctors and let's bring back Ace and Tegan uh, and to have them yeah. shoot guns and show. There's some weird concept of fandom that he, I think, he is very concerned with, but it's just not the one that exists like <laughs> in the present day. Ah. Uh- this is a this is the most interesting bit of the interview to me. Um, Chibnall says, "Remember, so Chibnall brought up Marvel and Netflix shows and all that sort of stuff in the pre-series eleven promo run all the time. So it's interesting what he says here. He says, unlike all those Marvel shows and films, Doctor Who never ends with a punch. That's still an incredible thing. So some of that pacifism." Uh, I wonder vibe. if Stevens would agree, since he was one like pushing the the Marvel and Hulu Netflix stuff yeah. back in the day. But yeah, yeah, I guess um, it's maybe mildly heartening to to hear that he still like sees some sort of difference between Doctor Who and the other shit. But at the same yeah. time, in Chibnall Who, it doesn't end with a punch; it ends with someone sacrificing themselves for the Doctor to to run yeah. away. So is that really that different? I don't know. I have no idea if this is a hot or cold take in the fandom or whatever subset of fandom these days. Uh but I don't really, I the the uh, intermittent pacifism of the Doctor isn't like a huge um, thing to me. The very similar thing which does appeal to me is the general like intellectualism of the Doctor. The idea that the Doctor succeeds with their mind over Brawn does appeal to me. But the idea that they just don't succeed with Brawn appeals to me less. If that makes sense, like the doc, the the Doctor, the, the Moffat, Stephen Moffat has a good quote about. Um, Oh, you know, it's that really sweetly, that sickeningly sweet quote. Yes, like, oh, instead of a gun, they gave him a screwdriver. You know, instead of a blah, 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 they gave him a thing. And that's kind of nice to me because it's like framing the doctors like an engineer or a scientist rather than like a um, a special agent or like a, or like a warrior. Uh, and that appeals to me. But I think there's a slightly separate or slightly kind of diminished version of that which is just that it's good that the doctor never does violence or that doctor doesn't do violence much and i don't care about that so much because i think there's some really compelling moments of the doctor doing violence uh the whole time war thing um you know part of the show's backstory for years was obviously entirely predicated on that um and i hate that wank about oh we never use the weapon like it's just we're it's this at war abstraction stuff I don't like from Moffat. It's like, oh, we want the juice of, oh, he was in a war, but we don't actually want that he uh, hurt anyone. So, we, you know, he didn't use a weapon, but he was... A, um, I think that's a cop-out. Uh, but Thin Ice, for example, is a really cool example of the Doctor using violence, and there's all sorts of examples across Classic Who and some new Who of... It's interesting when the Doctor resorts to violence. Like, I don't think... 
I don't think it is part of the show. I don't think it should be anyway. Like this completely off limits thing because the doctor isn't a strict, the doctor isn't a hundred percent pacifist. You know, that's what's interesting is that it's sometimes contested or not done. But yeah, do you know what I mean? There's a kind of a difference between the intellectualism of the doctor in the show and the pacifism of the doctor in the show. I feel like they're slightly different ideas. I think what does kind of hold true across whatever interpretation of the show you're going with is that the show is better at doing stuff with dialogue than yeah. <laughs> fight scenes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like, exactly. no matter what interpretation you're putting of the Doctor's character, like the show usually tends to work better when you're focusing on like stuff between characters, the Doctor having some clever solution or whatever, people talking to each other, or maybe the Doctor doing something clever, rather than like the villain gets like... I mean, there mm. is one very famous instance of the villain getting punched in the face resolving the story, and that's a beloved serial by Douglas Adams. But it's not like that. That's more of a gag, you know. It's like yeah. it's not some sort of big action uh, fest where the characters are amazing, like you know, martial arts yeah, and shit. Like it's not. It's not that kind of show. And you can see how it's distinct from maybe a lot of the like uh, Marvel superhero stuff in that sense. Yeah. But like at the same time, you know, fans can be very twee about fetishizing the non-violence. I, I, f- I feel like no one is gonna like say the great thing about Columbo is that he he never lifted his hand. <laughs> you know, they're gonna say the great thing about Columbo is that he's really smart. Uh, and the way he deduces things is so cool and the way he manipulates and, you know, figures stuff out is so cool. Um, and I feel like it's kind of blinkered to go, it's so cool that he doesn't punch people, you know? It's, I feel, and I feel it's a kind of similar thing with Doctor Who, where the great thing to me is the the smarts of the character and that they try and solve things through being smart or manipulative or um, deductive. Uh, and that interests me more than just this idea of they never poke people you know they never punch people especially because they do so so it feels like kind of a foregone thing to me anyway um the next thing uh is chibnall quoting uh a creator we all like some stuff from he says david lynch has a great quote plan vigorously and allow for the happy accidents chibnall continues everything on this show is that times a thousand especially in Havera well that's a fucking lie he doesn't plan anything so I really do I mean I think the the, the accidents pretty much form uh, a large amount of his era I think I think if he planned vigorously we'd be looking at very different television it's yeah I it's just so weird to bring Lynch up like I know I know he's a fan of Lynch because he's brought him up in other contexts too but it's just weird to think think how David Lynch does a TV show and think (laughs) Which is, you know, to write 18 scripts, like, all as, you know, in, like, as the big block of scripts and then go out and produce them and then, you know, in the editing room, um, go crazy, trying to make television out of it. Um, and Chibnall's version of writing is um, let Ella Road <laughs> do the three drafts and get it to my house for three days and we'll try and come up with a story. I think the, the meandering, thing. the meandering of some Chipu episodes is it's less Twin Peaks and more Inland Empire, <laughs> yeah. but, but not quite with the same yeah. level of you know enchanting uh, mystery and magic that film yeah. has. Yeah, more no, it's, it's just like what the fuck am I watching? This episode had a real improvisational air uh, to me, uh, <laughs> so I see the Inland Empire vibe there. Sure, like when the Sea Devil does the gigantic space jump onto the ship. <laughs> yeah, that's a very yeah fan film vibes were coming through strong. Oh, he um, you've you guys probably seen this thing he says here, which is you're not carrying a vase across a room. You've got to get in there and say what you want about the show, the character, and the world. It's one of the few drama series without a written bible. 
and every era contains a contradiction or left turn from what has come before. Any future showrunner will ignore it or run with it. Uh, and then he goes, oh, I fully expect Russell to ignore it. Um, presumably in reference to his timeless stuff, I guess is the contradictions all he's talking about. I mean, at the end of the day, you can talk about Russell ignoring it, but by the last episode of Flux, I mean, even he was ignoring it. Tectaeon never yeah. got mentioned again. So it's like, you can't, you know, like, imagine, does he even care at this point? Like, does it actually, does it ever matter to him that much, regardless of how much he might talk it up? Like, yeah, the know. whole, you've got to get in there and do it thing really rings weirdly hollow, considering the way that, like, that stuff has been treated in the show. It's sort of just, like, picked up and then dropped again immediately, or, like, if that i think every era is its own show and of course like when you're the showrunner you're the boss there's no you don't you don't get you don't defer to anyone before you you're the boss do what you want it's your show right now so i totally agree with him that um it's not a vase go and do what you can do but i'm judging him on the basis of what he's done which is <laughs> you know like the timeless children isn't bad because it contradicts uh hell bent or whatever it's bad because, you know, most of it is the doctor getting speechified to while she's stuck in hula hoops. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's bad because it's just riddled with endless exposition. It's bad because of how poorly the drama is done. It's not bad because it contradicts so-and-so. Just as, you know, it's... I feel like that's a really... um, It's like a little sleuthy move. It's like to conflate, oh, the criticism is about it's different. Like, uh rtd one's era wasn't bad because it was different from classic who uh it was bad because why was it no go on go on that one got away from you i think i got away from me yep um <laughs> but you know what i mean it's uh, what makes an era good or bad isn't how it relates to another era uh it's what it's doing on its own terms and part of that is going to be relating to another era but it's not like it's not like series five is good because it's like an rtd series in structure uh it's good because it's uh it's very lyrical it's got a lot of stuff it does really well and so on um that said i know someone could poke a hole in what i'm doing here and say hey but you were complaining that it brought up river and therefore husband's a river song but it was doing its own thing with the doctor is now not wanting to get attached to someone but that's because no era has to bring up another era like that's something i love about series 11 sincerely is that it's so enclosed to itself and it's not bringing up other stuff because there's so much endless doctor who um that if you start bringing other bits up you're firing people's neurons to compare like you bring the master back um, a couple of years after Missy and people are going to compare because you've bought them back. It's the same character. Like, um, do what you want to do with them. Uh, but you've got to be aware. Just that's how continuity works. You bring something back, people are going to think of the last time it was around. So uh, I agree with him that, you know, each era is its own and you shouldn't like just judge an era on how it relates to other ones. But at the same time, if you're making the decision to bring up comparisons to other eras yourself, well, that's part of your era is your choice to do that. That's your choice to bring back Ace and Tegan and to get people thinking about uh, the, all the great Tegan episodes or, you know, whatever. Because um, you've you're, no one made you bring them back. You've chosen to do that. That's part of what you're doing to the Vars. 
Yeah, and at the same time, if you invite if you invite comparisons to previous stories, like, and you do stuff that is just like, if you tell your version of a previous story and it's just people find it is not as good as the pre as the previous writer's version, or like the previous writer's interpretation of it, then you know people are gonna people are gonna think like, why are you like <laughs> doing this? Like, leave it alone. Yeah. You know, I think people people have a right to kind of be a bit irritated by stuff like that. Even not necessarily just because it's different, but if you're like if you're putting your f- you're dipping your foot into that pool, you know, you're invite you're opening up yourself up for for comparison mm. and criticisms. It's yeah, it's I think uh showrunners kind of set the tone for fans or for reasonable fans or how much you should be thinking about past who. So if you do a montage of the brains of Morbius, uh you're kind of asking for it. Um, is that unfair to say? Am I like blaming Ch- Chibnall there? You're kind of asking for it when you do clip shows of Classic Who. And I'd say the same for Moffat. Um, doing clip shows of Classic Who is him kind of saying, yeah, go ahead. I really think of what I'm doing in relation to other eras. I'm I'm, I'm showing them on screen. Think about it. RTD Series 1, uh, you're not doing any of that. He's he's really doing his own thing. Um, he's uh, like the Autons are in it, but you know, Spearhead isn't really brought up. It's just visually kind of referenced for fans who, if you know, you know. Uh, but so this, the era there, RTD1, is kind of setting the tone of, hey, I'm doing my own thing right now. Um, then you look at Series 7, where Moffat starts bringing in a lot more classic lore, and it's him like saying, hey, yeah, think about classic a bit more now. Uh, it's like Series 11 is saying, doing my own thing. And then Series 12 is saying, past stuff, you know, again. So, yeah. Um, the show tells you how to think about it, basically. The last bit of this interview, uh, worth bringing up, is Chibnall laughs when the interviewer asks him if he'll be pitching Doctor Who stories again past his era. He says, absolutely never again, clear red line, final script. I never expected to come back after working with Stephen Moffat, really. And I turned it down a couple of times after that. I never thought I'd be offered the job and built into that is why I wanted to keep it to a very specific three series thing. Well, we'll see. Honestly, we don't have much reason to trust past showrunners when they say they'll never return. <laughs> Truth be told. <laughs> you know, how many how many times has Moffat said he's done his final story, you know? But yeah. you know, maybe maybe Chibnall might be the first one to break the curse and actually stick to his word, because I feel like he's maybe that kind of guy. And maybe he's not he doesn't have quite that level of fan worm brain that RTD and Moffat have <laughs> when it comes to Doctor Who. So yeah, maybe maybe we'll spare of him in the future. It's like he said he turned it down a few times. Uh Moffat didn't do that. <laughs> you know, RTD fought for the show for years. This isn't a judgment at all. Um, like, I t- there's nothing wrong with turning down the show on a roll, uh, at least for a few times. It just shows that, uh, you know, RTD, Moffat, Chib, all very different men, um, different relationships to the show. Uh, so, yeah, I, I believe Chibnall um, that, he, that he won't return, um, at least as a TV writer. Uh, who knows, in a smaller context, what he might do. Maybe a novelization yeah. of his episodes. Which yeah, novelizations would you want of Chipu? <laughs> Anything in particular? Spyfall two, perhaps? Like Yeah, uh, <laughs> I would love if I could honestly choose all of Flux in one novel. I think it would be super interesting to see him like have a second crack at it. Um but realistically, if he did anything, I think it would be um Woman If Not Woman. Earth. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Which he, he's already wrote a bit of that. He did that lockdown short story like an interstitial thing of the Doctor falling. Uh, so that could be the prologue. The true story of the woman who fell to earth. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess just one last little thing is that, like, going revisiting this episode to talk about that, like, it made me sad. Like, there is something really, mm. really, like, soul-level, like, agonizing to, when, to seeing, like, a story that's so half-assed try to do stuff with, like, oh, this character sacrifices himself, and it's been a whole, uh, this character's father's died, and there's been a whole adventure, and it's all wrapping up, and this woman from finally see her sons again. And it's like, like, there's just, try, and all this, like, kind of attempted pathos and stuff. When you have something that's just so lazy on so many levels, it just feels so rushed and shitty. And it just, it's the kind of generic story that makes me never want to see a generic story again. Like, I, I really, like, all of the cliches that have just been, like, coughed up here, like, I, I hate them all now. I just, I never want to watch a story like mm. this again. It's just really just ruining stuff for me. Like, it's just really, like, insufferable to go through. And I just don't want, like, I don't want good actors or talent or production staff or whatever to be wasted on material like this ever like it's just it just feels like an injustice that this episode exists okay that's that's as much as i can say it's so striking to me that we got one more story and then um uh uh Z, the on would we go to whatever's next <laughs> uh yeah it's crazy to me one story left um it's been so long. It's I remember the very first week of the Chibnall era and us doing podcasts on it. It's just crazy, all this time to go by and for the era to have, uh, well, this doesn't feel like an improvement. Um, <laughs> I'll say that much. Um, but I'm sure we're going to have a very wacky centenary. And then, God, we're in the RTD too it's crazy you know a few weeks from our discussion here we're gonna get some announcements i dare say uh so we're in this last little era before everyone knows what's coming next so everything changes yeah as they say yeah everything changes um big things are coming so yeah let's 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 stick with the ride that's all this series. You don't even have to watch it in order. That's a written. Very cliche. 